And a very good afternoon or evening or wherever you may be. My name is Philip Klein. I am the Senior Investigator at Klein Investigations and Consulting, and we'd like to welcome you to podcast number three, The Michael Chambers Case. Sitting in the studio with me today is Caroline Gear, who is the case manager for the case. Caroline? So I know we left off with episode two stating we were going to do it over Patrick McDermott, but we've decided to do something a little bigger with that case um, and feature it live, a live podcast on our YouTube. So we have decided to go ahead and cover Michael Chambers. Um, he has been missing since March 10th of 2017. Um, and that means his four-year anniversary of him missing is coming up next week. So let's do a little background on Michael Chambers. Everybody seems to always ask me, who who is Michael Chambers and why is he so uh, so important out there in the investigation world? And, and, and it's kind of personal for police agencies and, and search and rescue folks. Uh, some of you uh, probably know or don't know. Uh, I am a firefighter in my city uh, of Nederland, Texas. Uh, I uh, volunteer my time and have done so for how many years? 27 now? Mm-hmm. It's 27. It's and I retire this, uh, this uh, spring. I am retiring from the fire service after giving 40 years of my time uh, in total to uh, fire and emergency services. And, uh, and so when this case came across my desk and uh, everybody started talking uh, to me about it. Uh, a very fine woman, Susie, uh, uh, who is our client, uh, came to us and said, you know, look, my father's missing. And uh, he was a firefighter in Dallas, Texas. And it really made a big uh, impression on me because, uh, you know, he, uh, Michael had given so many uh, years of his life to the fire service in Dallas, Texas. Uh, there were so many brothers and sisters of the Dallas Fire Department uh, that uh, called our offices and asked us to take the case. We necessarily were not, uh, you know, I, I don't want to say interested. I, I want to say we don't take cases unless we feel we can help. We'll review them. We'll take a look at them. We'll do everything we can to decide whether or not to take a case. But it all comes down to one thing. Can we help the case? We don't want to hurt the case. As I tell law enforcement, when we become involved in a case, if we step on your toes or we get into something that we shouldn't be getting into, uh, you know, communicate with us. And uh, if it's something that it's really not necessary in the case, we'll back out. But uh, in this case, Michael Chambers um, was a former firefighter who had retired uh, uh, up in the East Texas area, just outside of Tyler, Texas. Uh, and he is uh, probably a quintessential firefighter, uh, loves to help the community, uh, loves to help his family. Wouldn't you say? Would, how would you describe it? Yeah, he was a firefighter. He uh, retired after four, nearly 40 years of service. Um, everybody that we've spoken to said that he was very um, into cars, classic cars, uh, very giving person, um, genuine, had a heart of gold. Those were some of the words that were I mean, used. and even talking to the neighbors, they were they were so, I mean, you know, with your lawnmower broke, he came over and fixed your lawnmower. If your yard was deep and you, did, you were sick and you couldn't get out there, like a lot of retired people, 
uh, were out there, um, you know, he'd be the first person to, um, uh, to come to your aid and come and help you. And, and, and he was just that guy. He was just the quintessential firefighter. So um, anyway, he had uh, uh, he was married at the time uh, to a woman named Rebecca Chambers. Uh, Rebecca was a nurse and she was in the healthcare uh, prof- uh, profession. Uh, he had uh, four children, Susie, Sherry, John and Justin. And uh, so that's where we'll start with this uh, podcast is the Michael Chambers case missing now for four years. This is one of our newer missing person cases, one of it's four years old, but one of the newest ones that we um, have that is, I guess you could say, unsolved. Um, He is the seventh missing person in Hunt County. So it sounds to me like Hunt County has a problem. Well, yeah, and that and, you know, a lot of people have been calling us uh, regarding a, a car that was found by some divers uh, out in, and you have to pronounce the lake for me, Lake Tawakany? out at Lake Tawakany, and uh, uh, it, it, Hunt County has been described to us by some federal agents uh, that have been involved in the case and some that we work with on other cases out of the Dallas area as a, as a body dumping ground. Uh, there have been numerous bodies found in fields out of the Dallas area. There have been uh, numerous cars that have been recovered from the lake uh, where uh, Mr. Chambers and his wife lived. Um, it is just one of those places that, you know, I don't want to say it's scary because there's a lot of great people out there, but you can't look away from what now, seven bodies and five cars and, you know, you can go on and on and on. Uh, but it's a dumping ground for the for the uh, Dallas-Fort Worth area as far as law enforcement is concerned. And that makes it hard on the good men and women of the law enforcement of uh, Hunt County. So on the day he went missing, um, he was last, the last video footage image that we have of him is at Walmart uh, just after 9 a.m. He had, uh, his wife had gotten up that morning and she went to work and she had asked for him to buy a few things at the store, including some mascara. Um, He went to Walmart and we have him on video footage um, purchasing items. We have the receipt and then we also see him walk out, get into his truck and drive off. And that's the last anybody has seen of Michael Chambers. Uh, At approximately 4.51 in the afternoon, uh, his uh, wife states that she tried to text him and that she was on her way home. However, uh, he didn't answer. There was no communication. So she arrives at home. Uh, She finds the Walmart bag with mascara on the bathroom counter. And then she she starts some laundry in the washing machine. Now, here's where the the story starts breaking down for Mr. Chambers' wife. If she says, like she says she does, she texts him at 4.51 in the afternoon and says, hey, I'm on my way home. And then she's concerned because she goes, that's not normal for him. Right, Caroline? That's not normal. He, he would always text back or call her back and, mm-hmm. you know, tell her to pick up something for dinner or whatever the case may be. She says she was concerned that he didn't return the call. However, when she gets home, she states the first thing she does, rather than look around the house for her husband, that she's concerned about, she does the laundry. 
Well, I think it, I think she found the laundry already done in the helm is what my understanding is. I don't know if that's just a different story or that was what was written on her witness statement. Um, which again, this is her initial written out statement that she gives police is that she arrived home and his truck was in the driveway, but the garage door was closed. So she goes inside and she notices that um, the laundry had been in the washing machine and not switched over to the dryer. Um, then she notices as she walks through, I guess she calls his name out, no answer. Um, she walks through the house to find him and notices that the Walmart bag with the mascara in it that she asked him to get her that morning um, was sitting in bathroom counter. Again, this is the inside as you see investigators talk back and forth with each other. Uh, myself, I pick up on the small details. I want to hear the little details. The little details is if I'm thinking that my spouse is missing or will not answer the phone or that will not answer a text, it is confusing for me as an investigator why I wouldn't drop everything and go through the house. What am I worried about laundry for? But again, it's just a little it's a little tidbit that, that we as investigators look at. Some investigators look at it one way. I look at it a different way. You know, again, you should be concerned. You should be going through the house immediately and not concentrating on laundry or switching it from the washer to the dryer, whatever the case may be. But it's interesting that uh, Becky Chambers would bring this up. So um, here we go. We start looking through the house. Um, she goes next door to the next door neighbors, asking them, have you seen my husband? And that's of interest to me as an investigator. Um, why wouldn't you go through the whole house? And why wouldn't you go through where he usually hangs out, which is the, uh, we, we call it a, a warehouse. It's like a small warehouse where he kept his cars. He was a huge car enthusiast. Um, that's where he always hung out. Uh, he's a retired guy. He works on cars all the time, has a huge workbench that uh, any of you guys out there, or girls as a matter of fact, any person would uh, who loves to work with their hands and works in a garage, you would love this workbench. You would love this area. It's a guy's guy's place. It's kind of like a, when you say, Carolyn, when we when we searched, it was a, it's, it's a guy's hangout, right? Yeah, it's exactly what my husband wants. <laughs> and so anyway, and he'll get it. Uh, so anyway, so uh, she looks, uh, she goes next door and she, she talks to the neighbors and, and, and she says, I can't find him. Well, they get in the golf cart and they drive back up to the house and they drive back down to the lake. And again, this is Becca Chambers' side of the story. Uh, they drive down to the lake. They, they look, come up to the north side of the property, the south side of the property, the slough. They're looking everywhere everywhere on the property but the big warehouse they arrive in the warehouse and caroline take it from there so they go up to the shop and they look uh they try to open the door to see if he's in there the door was locked the lights were off um so i think one thing and we're going to circle back to this in just a bit is um who had copies of the keys to the shop so you need to keep that in mind as you listen along. 
So they go into the warehouse, they undo the door in the warehouse, and there's there's contradictory evidence from the witnesses and from Becca Chambers, who had the key, who opened the door, who turned the light on. You know, we need to get into specifics on this because what happens is, is the lights come on, they walk through the door, and oh my gosh, look what they find. They find blood on the floor. Now, here's where it all kind of goes haywire between us and law enforcement and us and Becca Chambers. Um, and, and we'll get into it a little bit deeper here later in this podcast. But the blood on the floor is in a circular, in a side-by-side manner. And there's a lot of blood. Uh, some people say, well, it's just like a thimble full of blood or that's wrong. It is, it is deep venous blood. Um, there is probably, I'd say, in my estimation, about a half of a pint, wouldn't you say? Almost a pint of blood on the floor. Yes. There's definitely more than what people are putting out there. A lot more. Uh, law enforcement says, oh, it's just maybe a tube of blood, or it's not. We have the photos. We have the the information. It is true that we were not there the day that the discovery of the blood, but that, you know, in fact, there's a lot more blood than people tend to uh, uh, tend to discuss. So, of course, the first thing the neighbors do, and the greatest thing about this is one of the neighbors is a former chief of police for a local police department. He, he recognizes, uh Oh, we've got a problem. So they get on the phone and they call nine one one and here comes the army. So uh, the army arrives about, uh, about five fifteen five thirty. 30. I'd say maybe closer to six. Some say there's a discretion discrepancy on that because it was not a priority one call. It was a uh, missing persons call. Uh, and uh, that uh, they had discovered blood in the warehouse. Well, and to stop you there, we're going to, here in just a little bit, um, when we get a little further into the podcast, go over some never-released phone logs, um, some times that can go ahead and put our timeline a little bit more into perspective of uh, when some phone calls were made and things of that nature. So, so to get to the, let's get through the, the original find. The original find is blood on the floor, blood on the ground. Um, and so the investigators are called in from Hunt County. Um, they put a helicopter, DPS helicopter up in the air. Um, and there is a search that is undertaken for the first, uh, I'd say, what, Caroline, 12, 14 hours? Mm-hmm. There was a, a search. They searched uh, around. And as some of you may or may not know, we call them grid searches. A grid search is undertaken. And what you look for in a grid search is the same kind of things that uh, that, that you would look for in a, a side-by-side search, which is basically you grid out the area in, by uh, – longitude and latitude, and then you search that area um, hand and foot, and you look for evidence such as shell casings, such as uh, personal effects, such as, um, you know, just anything that would be of suspect uh, on or near the area where the blood was found. Uh, The the four acres that they lived on was uh, searched in depth with dogs, with helicopters, with uh, with uh, personnel from the sheriff's department who, by the way, you know, we're going to talk about this a little bit more in depth. This is a sheriff's department that has just gone through a transition. 
Uh, there's a lot of rumors out there that, that we have said that we don't want to work with the Hunt County Sheriff's Department. That's not true. Uh, that is, we, we, we respect them. We want to work with them. We were the ones that were shunned away by the former sheriff. So, uh, you know, I think as we go through this podcast and as we present evidence and we show you folks uh, what we have and some things that have never been released, uh, I think that you will understand a little bit more of, of why we took the position we took in some areas. But anyway, long well, story short, the... Uh, back to the blood for a minute. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're going to go back to the blood spatter, as Philip stated, was in round circles. Um, but also one thing that was found there was what was described as a blood, a bloody stick that had a bloody end, which we later were able to identify via pictures and other um, witness statements that it was a bloody dowel. And it had a substantial amount of blood on it. So you have a bloody dowel, you have blood on the floor, uh, and then to describe it to you, and, and I think uh, we have not released it yet, but I think eventually we will we'll release it to you, is that there is a pattern that we call um, a dog walk. And so we'll talk about that here in just a second. It's been a controversial thing between us and the uh, Hunt County Sheriff's Department, but basically to describe the scene to you, there's two areas of blood. They are heavy droplets. Um, the droplets do go north to south, and what that means is basically um, you're looking at a blood droplet. You can see the spatter uh, of the drug blood, drug, <laughs> the blood droplet go a certain way, and then all of a sudden it stops. So we did a quick inventory of the building, and we come to find out that in fact there is a tarp missing. So now we've got blood, we've got a tarp missing, and we don't have Michael Chambers. So with that, we start the forensics check. Cell phones, where were you? What did you say? What did you see? When did you say it? When did you see it? Um, All these, and we start coming up with a pattern of behavior. And unfortunately, uh, Mr. Chambers, wife, uh, her story just isn't matching the physical evidence at that point. So investigators with our team begin to look at Becca Chambers. Now, whenever the, um, on the day of him missing, what we, what was able to be accounted for was his wallet and his truck keys were sitting on the bench. According to Rebecca's statement, it was odd because normally if his wallet, his keys, his cell phone, they would be all under his hat, but his hat was nowhere to be found. Equally, as the first question that many of you will ask is, well, was there money? Was there credit cards in the wallet? Did it look like it was a robbery? You know, what did you see? Well, we can announce today that his money was in his wallet. All of his credit cards were in his wallet. Uh, there was nothing stolen whatsoever uh, from that warehouse. The only thing that was missing, and you can call it a warehouse or a garage, it's a huge garage, but the only thing that was missing was a tarp. And his driver's license. And that's it. The blood stopped right inside the door. So imagine... Um, and one of our working theories is, is that um, the droplets, they stopped just shy of the door, the front door to the garage. Um, so again, there was no blood that went outside of the shop. It stopped just feet prior to the inside of the door. So 
we as investigators, you know, there's an old saying in the investigation world is you're only as smart as what you know. And so the stuff you don't know, you call in people that are in the know. So we took the photographs and we took the area photographs. And then, of course, we uh, were very lucky to be able to garner uh, how big the tarp was and that sort of thing. And we took it to some folks over in Harris County, Texas. Harris County is the city of Houston. And in the city of Houston, they have some very talented homicide investigators, uh, uh, MEs, ME investigators. You know, they are very sophisticated. When a body is found uh, anywhere in Houston, the Harris County Medical Examiner uh, takes over the scene. In fact, they take over the scene from the, uh, uh, from the homicide investigators because their job is to figure out the method of death. So I take all this information over because I'm, to be honest with you, I'm not a blood spatter expert. I'm not a, uh, an expert uh, that would understand um, how you would wrap a body up on a tarp, uh, how you would weight a body down, etc. So basically what we did was we took this information over to Harris County and we got with the investigators and investigators told us, well, take a look at this. And they turned around the photos instead of being north to south he said look here from east to west and i was like okay and still i don't see it teach me he said well this looks like a situation where somebody was actually hit in the upper torso or the head they fell to the ground there was blood that either came from the nose or the mouth and they were picked up from the behind and that somebody picked up the legs and they began to walk from the area to where the blood was found towards the door. And then we explained, well, all of a sudden the, the, the blood stopped. It just stopped. And they said, are you missing a tarp? The first words out of their mouth. Are you missing anything that a body could be carried in? And I said, yes, we're missing a tarp. They said, this is what we call a dog walk pattern, where a head is going back and forth. There's blood from the head that spatters itself, uh, in your case, from north to south, and it was walked in. Now, this has been a huge bone of contention between us and Hunt County. Hunt County says, no, it's just somebody tried to, how they put it, set it up. Somebody got some of his um, blood. Yes, and used a syringe to carefully place the blood onto the concrete in a pattern um they also claim or some would claim that our quote theory was what was the word that was used laughable laughable well then they're laughing at harris county so that's just it any good investigative team knows that if you don't know you know what if you're not educated in a certain aspect of an investigation you always go to somebody that is and I think that's important here is that it's not just our team that comes up with this theory. We seek opinions of others that are indeed well-versed in certain aspects. And in this case, basically what we have now is we have, we have a body that is missing. We have blood in a pattern and we have a tarp missing. So that indicates to us, oops, now we're looking at, somebody that hurt this man and put him in a tarp and rolled him up and what did they do with him now i want to talk a little bit about the the, the becca chambers at this point 
Becca Chambers has been interviewed. She's given her first statement. She's refused to work with law enforcement after that, and she has put up some of her children in front of her, and we, which is fine. I know it's a very emotional situation, but we know now that we his, his driver's license missing, his phone is missing, and quite frankly, he's missing. And so we ask Mrs. Chambers, okay, well, tell us about your day. Where were you? What did you do? Who did you talk to? What time did you talk to them? And remember, whenever you're interviewed by an investigator, a good investigator, we already know the answers to the questions that we're asking you. We're giving you a little bit of test in the beginning. We're trying to find out from you being the witness if you're truthful or not. Now, some people that are in an emotional situation, they don't remember. Uh, I've, I've had car accident folks that I've interviewed before that just didn't remember what was going on and who was going on and how it happened and what happened um, because they've had a brain injury or they've been in shock trauma or something to that effect. In this case, by the time we got to Miss Chambers, and she wouldn't talk to us, obviously, um, but she did make a formal statement to the police department that laid out her entire day. Which is where she was, who she was talking to, where she went. So we're going to verify her statements. We go for first thing that everybody loves, your cell phone. The first thing we want to look at is cell phone records. And we, the investigators, get the cell phone records. And not only do we get the cell phone records, we get the triangulation from the cell phone, how it was pinging, where she was, where she wasn't, which is just as important, and why do we turn off our cell phone? So we begin that part of the investigation as well as we put a team, a secondary team, I'd call it, on Becca Chambers. Who is she? What's her history? Where'd she go to school? How are her grades? What did she do that was normal? What did she do that was abnormal? Uh, we interviewed people that were around her, her friends. We interviewed people that we were able to track to one of her favorite bars she went to. And the pic picture of Becca Chambers began to emerge. So before we get to that, we're going to go over a couple other things that are outliers in this case. Ten days after Mr. Chamber went missing, Becca decided to turn off his phone and cancel his account, cancel his phone number. She also took her son, Justin, who was on their um, phone account, off as well. Two months after, a little over two months after, actually it was just three days shy of three months, on June 7th of 2017 at 1.40 p.m., the court uh, declares Mr. Chambers deceased. Now, being in the investigation business, Caroline, and yes or no, have you ever and you've been doing this 12 years. I've been doing it 30-something years. One of you, 14 years, my bad. Uh, have you ever seen anybody declared dead within two to three months? No, it's not a thing. And it's, I'm it, pretty sure happened. that there's actually a law against declaring someone dead in, that soon. In Texas, you have to have seven years if you don't have a, if you don't have a body. However, if you get a judge that you know, or that you're sleeping with. Well, Alleged. or if you have slept with, in this case, 
you you can get a lot of things done very, very quickly. And apparently she got it done. What she did was she petitioned the court to have him declared dead. Now, to hear her side of the story, she says that she wanted, according to family members, she wanted to have him declared dead so she could start the legal process to sell the house, to sell his effects, to get his firefighter uh, benefits. Uh, he was a retired firefighter, had a substantial amount of money uh, in the bank and in stocks, bonds, etc. Um, she she says that this is what she needed to do. And so what she did was she went to a justice of the peace and they did a informal hearing, I would call it. Uh, they didn't even file a seven-day notice. Uh, they didn't call witnesses. They just had him declared dead. And so that gave her the keys to Pandora's box where she got everything. Uh, there was no will executed. There was no probate. There was no nothing. There was just all of his assets that were put into one big lump pile, and she now had control. If you don't think that opened investigators' eyes and they put our antennas up, folks, you got another thing coming. We're going to take a quick break and hear a little bit about our sponsor. We'll be back shortly. Welcome back to part two of our review of the Michael Chambers case on the Klein Files. And uh, we appreciate you guys listening and we, we thank you so much for your support of our firm and, and our employees here at KIC Texas. We, we've really put a great team together. In fact, in my 31 years of doing this, I can assure you that uh, I can vouch for each one of these people that work with us in, 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 in these missing person cases. And I'm proud to be their leader. Uh, as I uh, as I begin my walk into the twilight of my career, uh, you know, my, I call it my third part of my career. Every 10 years, it seems I change. And, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad we're able to give this podcast. So it'll be uh, it'll be out there forever. And it'll be out there for, uh, you know, folks that want to get in the investigation business and folks that are in the investigation business. So as we've been talking about the Michael Chambers case, he's been missing since March 10th of 2017. KIC Texas was brought in in Caroline. What uh, what month were we brought in? I, I believe it was either the end of 2017 um, or, or maybe at the beginning of 2018. Right. I'd have to go back and verify that date. So but. there had been a lot of grass that had grown underneath our feet uh, by that point or by this case's feet, as we say. And, and uh, also, just I think it's important to mention that the uh, our clients had actually, not not our clients, the family had actually already hired a different PI to come in and take a, I guess, a, a first look at the case, um, who's another PI uh, in, up in the Dallas area. Um, however, we were hired by um, the uh, Michael Chambers' daughter, um, Susie, and she gave me permission to say that. Uh, pretty much everybody knows it. Um, but I think it's important to say that there, this case has been so complex and has had different levels, both of... Uh, you know, civil and criminal um, investigators. So, okay. So here we go. So here's the first thing that, that you need to know and any investigator needs to know in a case, which is a timeline. We want to put what we call the master timeline together. That is putting Michael Chambers 
what we know, where he was, how he was, based upon cell phone pings, based upon video, based upon phone calls. Where was he when he made a call? Where was he? Was he at the house? Well, he, we know he went to Walmart. We were able to put this base timeline together for Michael Chambers. Then the report E, which is his wife, Becca, we were able to put a timeline in there. Not to go through all the details, but she went through the day pretty much as she said, but about, what, Karen, 1.45, 2 o'clock, what she had told investigators based upon what her cell phone showed began to go off the rails. Uh, she uh, went off the air, as we say, at uh, about, what, 2.23, I believe it was. Her cell phone went dead. Uh, and so when that went dead, the question was, well, wait a minute, why, you know, why isn't she using her cell phone anymore. Um, then the second thing we noticed was, is who called her? Well, there was a gentleman by the name of Mr. Purnell. Um, we, Mr. Purnell had been on our radar because Ms. Chambers had had issues with, uh, let's just put it nicely, loyalty to her husband. Um, she had been known to go to certain dance clubs in local bars uh, in the city. Uh, closest to where she lived, and she had just not been faithful. And I think everybody in the family would would definitely agree with that. Um, it was just a, a bad, bad situation. Maybe it was a bad marriage. Maybe it was a just a, one side needed something that the other side couldn't give. Uh, who knows? But in the end, um, Becca was not uh, a fairy princess in this marriage. And she was not loyal to uh, her husband in this marriage. Again, we don't know the inside of their marriage because the only person we have to talk to is Becca and she's not talking. So um, so today we're going to release the phone logs from Becca on the day that Mr. Chambers went missing, right. which was March 10th of 2017. There were five phone calls in the morning um, that were all work related. Uh, we can verify that. We know who they were to or who they were from. Um, then again, at 2.20, uh, Miss Becca calls Carrie Pinnell. At 2.53 p.m., Carrie calls Becca back. And at 3.08 p.m., Carrie Pinnell calls Becca again. There is nothing after 3.08, so between roughly 3, I'd say between 3.10, 3.15, um, all the way until she texted Mr. Chambers at 4.51 p.m., there's nothing, that's when her phone essentially goes dead. Right. Between 2.23 and 3.08 in the afternoon, there's been some dead spots. But then all of a sudden it comes back live on the air at 3.08. We are able to triangulate. Now let's take a moment and talk about triangulation. Basically, cell phones are, are simply a walkie-talkie. That's all they are. And they emit a, uh, what they call a ping. Uh, the phone is sending a signal to the tower saying, hey, here I am, here I am. If you get anything, send it to me on my phone number. Um, when you use your phone, law enforcement is able to do a thing called triangulation now. In fact, you're able to do triangulation if you're using Google, uh, if you're using um, uh, certain uh, cell services. I think Verizon has a great program that you can, if you have an iPhone, you can track by where is my iPhone. You can track 
actually how fast you're going uh, on your iPhone, uh, as long as you have certain things turned on your phone. Long story short, um, you get into the um, the phone and basically find out the triangulation. So we know between 223 and 308, it goes dead, but then it comes back live and a phone call's made. Talk about that 308 phone call, Caroline. So again, there were three phone calls. 220, Becca calls Carrie. 253, Carrie calls Becca. And at 308, Carrie calls Becca again. There is nothing after between 3.15 and when he she texted Michael at 4.51 p.m. to say she was coming home. Now, let's, let's, let me interject here real quick. It's very important for you folks to understand that the phone call, the, the phone's off. You can't track it. It goes dead at approximately 3.15. Take us from there. So the next phone call that Becca makes is to Susie, Mr. Chambers' daughter, at 5.28 p.m. The next phone call that Becca makes is to son John at 5.32 p.m. And then lastly, she calls Michael's phone just to see if she can get an answer at 5.33 p.m., 5.28 p.m., 6.07 p.m., and 6.09 p.m. Now, during this time, and I guess I'm going to take the forensic side of all this, the, on, 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 at that point, we, the investigators, are, are, are able to garner the phone data. And the phone data shows very, very clearly that the phone is moving. Now, what does that mean? That means it's pinging at certain data points. When it comes into a new tower, it comes into a new cell tower, it's pinging. And that means that it's moving. So we're able to take a look at what the analysis says about the phone. And here's what they say. They say the phone is traveling at four miles an hour. Uh, the police department puts a theory together that says this is what we call the bike theory. They believe that Mr. Chambers got on a bike and then had the phone with him along with his driver's license. And then they, he is going along the road, I guess, on his bike all the way to what they call the bridge, 7.95 miles away. Now, anybody that lives out in the area where Mr. Chambers lives knows that there are no bike paths. All it is is, how do you want to describe it? Rocks? Rough road? Yeah, you're in the country. So it's, it's countryside. I mean, there's no bike pass like what you would see in a city there's no um, there's none of that it's either the road or it's the grass and the conditions that day were warm let's just call it warm they're between 85 and 89 degrees uh the grass was coming up as it normally does uh during the march season we're like right now we're at the march season so you can see the grass coming up um and so Importantly, when we put out the call and when law enforcement put out, put out the call, where or who may have seen him on his bicycle? Now, remember, this is a six foot five guy on a small bicycle. And remember, there are a his and her bicycle. Well, I guess I didn't 
We didn't give that bit of information. I'll give it to you now. There's a his and her bicycle in the warehouse. We found one bicycle in the warehouse while we were there. Um, he apparently, according to the theory that the police are putting out, is that he used the second bicycle uh, to go on his little bicycle ride. One of the things that we did do, uh, we checked the secondary bicycle. It was flat tires. It hadn't been ridden. It was rust, rusted. Those bikes hadn't been ridden and who knows how long. But anyway, the, um, the theory that the police were putting out was he got on a bicycle. He rode his bicycle 7.9 miles over to the bridge. And then the I, I guess they say that he threw the bike over the bridge and then he jumped into the water mm-hmm. and he himself. committed suicide to kill himself. Now, if you know this bridge, you know that it is not that high off of the... What, four feet? Five? Off of the water. Yeah. I mean, we we live here amongst the highest bridge... In the state of Texas. In the state of Texas. It wasn't that. It was a four to five foot bridge. Um. So... They believe that, and the, the, the former sheriff, now I'm not talking about the detectives. The detectives have another theory. But the former sheriff believes that he rode his bicycle all the way along the road over to the bridge. He pushed the bicycle off the bridge and pushed himself. And we have no witnesses, folks. None. Nobody saw him in that 7.9 mile. Now you do the math. And figure out that that at four miles an hour, 7.9 miles would have taken, my goodness, what, three, four hours. And then you match when the cell phone ping stopped at the bridge. We don't believe that. What we do believe is that the body was disposed of and then his personal effect, being his driver's license and his cell phone, uh, were thrown over that bridge. We do believe the phone was at that bridge. Now, that's why you've seen so many searches over there. Uh, scuba divers going in looking for certain things, uh, evidence, that sort of thing. Uh, you know, anybody that knows that lake out there, uh, you know, we, we called the Corps of Engineers again. Here we go again. We don't know what's down there at the bottom, so we call the Corps of Engineers. They say it is murky, especially in that bridge area. Uh, there's a lot of silt that can go down two or three feet. So trying to find that cell phone would be... Uh, I don't know, folks. It would be it would be a, a situation where it'd be a, a needle in a haystack. Yeah. So let's talk about Mr. Chambers' phone real quick. Um, we've already spoken about how we have the uh, I guess what the cell phone analysis of um, the times and dates that his um, cell phone pinged um, in various areas. So today we will confirm that the last cell phone ping that we have, which is either on or near the bridge, was at 5.53 p.m. Now, here's a couple of little tidbits that we'd like to kind of put in your brains. And, and maybe you guys can can give us a little something. Uh, the lead detective uh, in the case uh, finally confessed that when they took samples of the blood, uh, they never sent it off for coagulants. All they did was set it off for DNA that did match Michael Chambers. Okay? That kind of raised our eyebrows again a little bit. Uh, an Apple Watch uh, that was there at the scene was never sent off to, to retrieve uh, information from. That was very concerning. Um, there was a suspect being one of his um, sons or 
I believe he was a son, uh, that was suspected by the sheriff's department. Um, his name was uh, Justin. Um, he, he made some outrageous, crazy allegations. allegations, I guess you call them. And they're not even worth paying any attention to because that's just what it was, outrageous. Right. right. Um, and so the other thing shows is that that Becca was never interviewed or or pled for her husband's return. That was something that we really, really raised our eyebrows about, and we asked law enforcement about it, which was, "Hey, did Becca ever get on TV or radio? Because it was a big, it was a big deal up in in North Texas. All the major uh, TV stations carried it. It was covered by a national television station, uh, CBS, and and so the the question was." You know, did she ever get out in front of the media and did she ever plead for her husband's return? She didn't. Now, is that bad or good? I don't know. Uh, but she was never interviewed formally uh, by the FBI, Texas Rangers, or by the Hunt County Sheriff's Department. And then finally, what really raised our eyebrows, they did do an informal interview with her. And, and, and this is where we just went off the edge on this. She, she confessed to having an affair with Carrie Pinnell. She confessed to having a, a, an affair with another gentleman by the last name of Dunn. And then the bombshell. It's been alleged from several tipsters that she was either having an affair with the previous sheriff or someone in the sheriff's family. Um, again, that's alleged. These are all tips that obviously we're going to run down. We're going to look into, or we have already, and maybe we do know the answer and we're just not ready to publicly state exactly what that answer is yet. So we assigned investigator MJ Holmes. She does a great job with analysis, uh, statement analysis, and she is probably maybe one of the best interviewers that I've ever wouldn't you agree? One of the best interviewers that we've ever seen. She definitely knows how to get information from people. And so anyway, so investigator Holmes and myself, again, remember, I'm not the smartest egg in the basket. Okay. So I always get people that are smart at certain things. Investigator Holmes and myself, we go out to Mr. Pinnell's residence and we arrive at the residence and Mr. Pinnell comes to the door and we begin a shocking 30 minute interview where he just flat out lies to us. We remember the theory we've given it to you before. I'll give it to you again. Any good investigator will know the answers to some of the questions that we're asking to test you to see if you are going to tell us the truth. And Mr. Pinnell stood there and lied to us. He just bold faced lied to us. Now, was that because he just didn't want us to know the truth. Did, was he involved in a disposable body? Was he involved in a homicide? We don't know. But we sat there and we talked to Mr. Pinnell, and then finally we presented him with his pings, his cell phone conversations, and, and his timeline. And then he turned to us and said, yes. I had been, and I was having an affair with Becca Chambers. And that took us all aback. He was honest. He admitted to his relationship. And we began to ask the question, Mr. Pinnell, 
what was their marriage like? And obviously you can assume the answers he gave us, we're going to kind of hold some of that back because we believe one day this is going to a prosecutorial phase. Uh, but he did admit that it was a bad situation. We asked him, did you admit that to the sheriff's department? And the answer was yes. He had told the sheriff's department. So our question was at that point, how many people are involved in this thing? And why aren't we calling an outside agency in to come in and take over this? Now, I'm not saying anything about the, invest the current sheriff, the brand new sheriff. He just took office in January. So he has nothing to do with this. So don't, I hope you listeners out there don't jump on his back. He, everyone tells us he's a great guy. Am I right? Yeah, that's the number one thing that we've heard. He's a great guy. He's genuine, sincere. He wants to do the job right. He wants to bring closure to all these, these I think, six missing person families now. It, well, I think it might still be seven. I don't think um, Karen Parker has body. been found. Yeah, her yet, body hasn't been found. Her car has. So, right. um, But, yeah, so we're not talking about the current sheriff. What we were talking about is the previous sheriff, Randy Meeks, um, who, if you know this story and you know this timeline and you know this missing person, you know that he has publicly stated his disdain for Philip and this uh, investigation company. And again, as investigators, you know, one of the things we find, and if you've been in the business as long as we have, you understand people when they start yelling and they start putting up smoke screens and they start making it personal that they know more than they're saying. Uh, and that's a sad state of affairs for a sheriff to stand up and at that point, we had put in, what, 400 hours of time by investigators from all over the United States. We had to, uh, Trey Sargent, who's maybe one of the best dog handlers, came in on a major search on the northeast side of the lake uh, where we were actually kicking snakes and, and running away from hogs. Um, MJ Holmes, who had come in and done countless interviews. Uh, Caroline Gear, who had been up there coordinating and doing interviews. Uh, Charlie Klein, who had come out there, who is, who is also part of this group, uh, and he is a ground searcher and, and putting together a ground search. I mean, you, you talk about the people that have been involved in this case and how much time and effort. And this man gets up and says, well, I don't like him because of what somebody said on the Internet about Mr. Klein. I mean, that's not only is that unprofessional, but it's just it hurt the case. And people began to clam up. It has taken us, what, almost a year, uh, eight months. Uh, and, and then rumors hit that we weren't cooperating with police. We were getting evidence and not turning it over. That's absolutely false. What is true is the lead investigator left when the sheriff left. And a new lead investigator has come up, Lieutenant... Uh, I can't remember the lieutenant's name. I don't now, think a new one. lead investigator has been assigned yet. The lieutenant has taken it over personally. Uh, and he's in, and currently right now, and he has not assigned a new person as being the lead investigator. So the lieutenant has the case now, and he's going to assign a new investigator to it. So that's where law enforcement is. And so where we are currently right now, we are in the process of re-examining all of the evidence because we feel that it's right there in front of us. You know, my question is, is would somebody take a body away from that area 
in the evening time? And would they take the chance of, of riding it away from the Chambers house? I, I mean, it just, it makes no sense. Our guess is it's within a mile radius of that house. And that's usually, um, that is usually the, 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 what does Trace call it? The, the, the modus operandi of, 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 of where bodies can be. Do we believe that that body could be far away from the Chambers house? Yeah, it could be, but likely it's within one square mile, we believe. So a couple other things that we want to just take note because we're running out of time. So we want to um, make sure that we put out these things that um, we call anomalies that we want to leave you thinking about. Number one is who had keys to the shop? Mr. Chambers wouldn't have just locked himself in there or locked himself out and, and stage a scene like some have suggested. So who other, what other family members other than we know Becca definitely had a key because she's the one that opened the shop. Um, but what other family members or friends did? Number two, we received a tip stating that Becca never bought, uh, never used store-bought mascara and that in fact she had just picked up mascara from a seller of a, of a very well-known company. Um, so that begs the question of why on earth did she, was he asked by her to go to Walmart and pick up mascara that morning? Equally, we've done three time distance studies because if law enforcement tells us, hey, this is the theory we're running with, we're not trying to disprove them. We're just doing what they do to us, which is checking up on, you know, if that time distance study works. We have done the four miles per hour at 7.9 miles going through rocks, uh, ditches, having to stop for stoplights. Uh, again, there's no witnesses that say that they saw anybody on a bike between the Chambers house and the bridge, which is a long, long way away and through heavy, heavy traffic at some points. Uh, we were not able to confirm uh, that, uh, that through three different time distance study. So we know the suicide theory is, is, is just, you know. Crazy. It's crazy. Doesn't work. And lastly, the one thing that um, we get the most questions about is lie detector tests. We all know that they're inadmissible in court, um, but they can also help tell a story. So the four people that we are aware of, um, I'm not saying this is limited to just these four, but the four people that we are aware of that were asked to come in and take lie detector tests are Becca, the wife, David, and Susie. So Susie is Mr. Chambers' daughter. And David is her now ex-husband, but was her husband at the time of his disappearance. Um, and then Justin, who is the youngest son. Um, I think it's important to note here that um, we are aware that Becca failed a portion of her, um, her lie detector test. Um, we are told that she took it while she um, had taken Xanax as well. So that could have played a factor into it. Um, Susie was asked to come in and take a lie detector test. However, she sat there all day, asked when they were going to give it to her, said she had nothing to hide. Um, and that's when one of the detectives at the time told her that she was um, told, the detective, excuse me, told our client, Susie, that he was told to bring her in and make her be there that entire day. But there was never any intention 
of giving her that detector test. So what we're asking you, the public, as we conclude this podcast, is that if you remember anything, or you have friends or families, and I know everybody sits around the dinner table and everybody sits around the campfire and talks about cases like this. If you live out in that area, uh, and Caroline, what would you call a specific area out there near Walmart, uh, the, the small town? Quinlan. Quinlan, Texas. If you're in the Quinlan, Texas area, um, please, if you know something, say something. We need your help on this case. Equally, number two, support your local law enforcement. Support Hunt County. Support this new sheriff. Support the new lead detective when he or she is assigned. L- support the lieutenant who is who is trying to put the case back together. Uh, they did admit uh, this last week that it's kind of been a cold case and they really haven't worked it that hard. Uh, we, in fact, have worked it very hard, uh, developing uh, sources, uh, developing witnesses, Establishing relationships. Uh, establishing relationships, quietly working behind the scene. Uh, and so we ask you, the public, to uh, put the word out. If you know something, say something. And, of course, uh, up there in the Quinlan area, you know, I know you guys see us all the time. Some people walk up to us at dinners and like they do all around the United States and say thank you. Or somebody will surprisingly just, you know, buy our dinner or do something. Uh, they recognize us from, my guess, TV or hearing a voice or something, but we, we appreciate all of you out there uh, in the Quinlan area. Uh, but Michael Chambers' case is a solvable case. We will get the case solved, and we just need that right person to show up and, and, and give us the information we need. I think it's important to also leave you with um, the, the nuggets of information that we did release today um, that, that could help somebody that may it have, may be it triggered a memory or maybe it triggered something for you to say, oh, no, actually, I was with this person or talked to this person or whatever that could help fill in that timeline of what transpired um, on the day he went missing. So we're just asking that you, um, if you want to remain anonymous, you can send it to us anonymous. We have a tip line set up for you at 409-729-8798, extension 8, or you can do extension 3 and talk to me personally. I keep everybody anonymous, and um, I do not release names. We also have an email set up, admin, A-D-M-I-N, at kleininvestigations, with an S, dot com. And again, thank you guys so very, very much on behalf of the investigative team, all the way from Georgia to Texas to California. Everywhere in between, we really do appreciate you, and we thank you so very, very much for your support. And we look forward to uh, to uh, your phone calls to help us. And uh, next, uh, the next podcast, I guess, will be probably one of the most controversial, and that will be uh, the one where the national media will pick up on it, which is the uh, Olivia Newton-John case and the Patrick McDermott disappearance. So with that, we'll talk to you next week. Bye. If you haven't already, make sure to like and subscribe to the Klein Files podcast on whatever podcast platform you currently use. We'll see you next week.